Hello and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in the Los Feliz area of Los Angeles, or we hope to be again sometime soon. Everything we do as a church is, as with most of the rest of life, currently happening online. We're not all in the same circumstances, but these days are not easy for most of us, so please know that we're here for you if you need any spiritual or emotional support at all. The Holy Spirit is not held back by coronavirus, and this current teaching series is our response to what we believe he's saying to us as a church, to expect more. God is at work and he is powerful. We're praying that your faith for his presence and power in your own life will be raised as you listen today. A change is as good as a rest is something that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle may or may not have first said, but I'm not completely sure that what most of us need from our Sunday morning church experience right now is a different room in our house. The whole online church thing is getting a bit old, isn't it? And we all know that church isn't about the building, that bread most certainly isn't about Los Feliz Den Magna Auditorium with its squeaky chairs and its low-stalled bathroom doors. But there is a profound spiritual point of the whole church thing about gathering together in his name. And of course, as time goes on, we realise how fantastically lucky we are to be doing this in a technological age that gives us Zoom and gives us the whole online thing. But it really isn't the same. Ed and I spent some time a few weeks ago when reported stats looked a bit more favourable, exploring options around meeting together outside with all the safety protocols in place. But with the trajectory of cases and hospitalizations being what it is in this area right now, we are all in complete agreement that meeting together still isn't something that we can consider doing outside or any other way. We will, of course, um, continue to pray and to explore and to keep you updated about this. But something has hit us lately and it may well have hit you too. Something of a level of desperation that we feel for just divine direction on where we should go from here, how we can hold ourselves together as a church and be faithful to everything that we know we need to do to stop the virus, but also be faithful to know what we're called to, to do what we're called to be, to meet each other's needs, to rebuild this community. How on earth are we supposed to do it? And in very simple terms, the answer that we've heard to this how on earth question is the same to all how on earth questions in the kingdom, by his spirit, in his power, in his strength, because ours most certainly isn't going to cut it. And we decided to do this series on Jesus' miracles because we felt pretty strongly convicted that we've really dropped the ball on the supernatural side of our faith, which is of course the wrong way to put it because the Christian faith doesn't have a supernatural side, it is supernatural through and through, start to finish. Ed and I had really different backgrounds on this stuff in lots of ways, but for both of us, our journey back to faith was punctuated by and grown in an environment of church that had the supernatural, the miraculous, the daily, ongoing, personal, tangible, spiritual, physical, emotional, psychological experience of the Holy Spirit as part of its DNA. It was just the culture. And I don't remember spending a long time being worried about the strange noises that people make or the weird things they do with their bodies when their spirit's meeting them in power, or I got past it quite quickly because of the evidence. We saw bodies healed. 
we saw demons delivered, we saw people change, lives transformed, deep trauma healed, purpose given, gifts imparted, relationships restored. It's why we believed we were all there. And I can vividly remember the feeling at the end of the service when the speaker would invite people forward and there would be this rush, sometimes half the room or more would, of the congregation would be rushing forward. In fact, I can remember that I used to deliberately sit on the end of an aisle so that I could get there quickly and find a good spot in the middle of all the action. Church just felt exciting. Like we never knew quite what was going to happen, just that it was going to be good and real. It wasn't perfect by any means, but it really felt like a privilege to be a part of it. And we're not sure that we've managed to build this same DNA at Bread. We have seen some wonderful, beautiful, life-changing stuff happen, and I could easily rattle some examples off of that. But I am not sure that we have had the same level of expectation that every single person who walked through the doors um, would have an experience of meeting the presence and power of God back when we walked through doors to services. And I think that there are several very good reasons for why this has been difficult in Los Angeles. One of the main ones is just how difficult it is for lots of people to trust, to trust leaders and their claims of what God is like, and to trust the Spirit to just pray, come and have your way, is quite possibly one of the most terrifying prayers many of us could pray for understandable reasons. If you haven't seen it be good, of course it's gonna be difficult for you to open yourself to it. But what we have heard God say and what we felt he reminded us of in the last few weeks is just about his power, his strength when we are weak. There just is something to this spiritual power of brokenness that so many of us find ourselves in right now. Sometimes we can only really understand that he is all we need until he is all we have. The image that I had when we were praying with the team this week was that of a hen sitting on her eggs. And I do need to point out after Ed's uh, picture last week of cream being churned that we don't always have a farmyard homestead theme to our uh, pictures when we hear from the spirit. It just is a coincidence in this case. But the thing about eggs, you may or may not know this already, but if not, allow me to impart some egg knowledge to you. A chick does not grow automatically from a fertilized egg being laid. A fertilized egg is just any old egg, good for eating, good for anything that we do with eggs, until it is sat on by a hen, until it is incubated. The temperature reached when an egg is sat on is what causes the biological transformation from which a chicken is made out of an egg. And the sense that I had uh, that God was saying is that there are a number of us who have gifts and calls and I guess in general just things to do in the kingdom that need this sitting time. They need to be sat up. They need this process of incubation that we're in right now. And they won't be born unless they have this time, which may or may not feel like brokenness right now. But really, it's where so many of life's distractions are just unavailable. So many of our own efforts, so many of the things that we normally comfort ourselves with, have just been shown that they can't really get us there. They haven't been getting us there. But these chicks will not exist without the sitting, brooding period. And then the sense that I had was from Isaiah 43. Stop dwelling on past events and brooding over times gone by. I am doing something new. It's springing up, a road in the desert, rivers in the wasteland. 
And I really did feel that this was for quite a few of us. But that's not the passage I'm speaking on today. Here is the second miracle of our new, um, in our new Jesus miracle series. It's the feeding of the multitude, which is a very well-known one, uh, told in all four gospels, in fact, which is the only one of Jesus' miracles to have that accolade. Uh, but there's also kind of unusual unanimity in the details that the four gospels relay. So there does seem to be something of extra special importance about this story to the early Christian writers. Jeremy is going to read it for us now from Luke's account in chapter 9. But to give a bit of context, the disciples have just returned from their first sending out experience where it says Jesus gave them power and authority to preach, deliver and heal. And they have now come back to him. Thanks, Jeremy. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him and withdrew by himself to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. He replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the, to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. So the story starts with Jesus and the disciples retreating to a remote place and then being followed by a crowd. And in this instance, Jesus welcomes them. He knows that this is a moment of enormous prophetic significance in revealing who he is. Now, I have a sense that prophetic significance of this miracle isn't necessarily what people want to hear about this morning, but I'm just going to start there because we're not understanding the miracle properly if we don't understand what it meant and therefore how it was recorded by the gospel writers. A lot of the imagery and structure in the telling of this miracle is intended to draw the comparison between what Jesus is doing here and what Moses did at Sinai. The idea that the Messiah would be the new or the second Moses is one that runs right through rabbinic literature and is particularly prevalent in uh, Matthew and John's accounts, but it's there in all of them. There's also some big Hebrew numerical significance, which is easy for us to miss. Five loaves to represent five books of the Pentateuch, two fish to represent the two tablets of stone, a total of seven to signify perfection or completion. 5,000, which is probably not to be taken literally, it's just a number to symbolically mean the whole community of Torah people. If you want to be technical about it, it's 10 times 10 times 10, the number of three meaning community, it's the way of saying all of them. Jesus came to feed all the people. Jesus has them sit down in groups of 50, which is the same as the number that Jethro, who is uh, Moses' father-in-law, has the Israelites sit down in. Mark adds that when Jesus saw a great multitude, he was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd, which sounds a bit like it was written to resemble an Ezekiel prophecy from 600 years earlier, where it said, I will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. I will feed them in good pasture and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. 
The miraculous provision of bread, of course, is a retelling of a miraculous provision of manna in the wilderness as told in Exodus 16, but it also bears striking resemblance to a crowd-feeding miracle by Elisha in Two Kings, which also resulted in there being more than enough manifested not from human ability or resources, but from divine provision of plenty. Here in this miracle, 12 baskets left over, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples with a basket full of bread, each in surplus. The miracle pans out and is retold in all four Gospels to declare who Jesus is in fulfilment of Old Testament foreshadowing. Jesus is the new Moses, the Messiah, the one we've all been waiting for, completion of the law, more than enough for everyone. But what's more significant, I think, for us this morning is that unlike many of Jesus' miracles, this one is not told from the perspective of the crowd. There is no mention of the crowd's reaction whatsoever. Because Luke, I think, is much more interested in telling us about something else. The bedazzlement of this miracle is for the audience of not the crowd, but the disciples. I think that one of the ways that Jesus' humanity is revealed ongoingly more than any other is his sort of gentle frustration with how long it tends to take the disciples to catch up and catch on with what he's saying. I think so often his tone is, guys, when will you learn? I've already told you what I'm here to do. You know, like slightly eye-rolly. But here, I think it's very different. He's been teaching and performing miracles to a crowd of people in need. And verse 12, late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him and said, send the crowd away so that they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging. A perfectly reasonable suggestion. And Jesus replied, you give them something to eat. I don't think it's eye-rolly here. I think it's more eye-twinkly. Remember, they've just got back from this trip where they've been performing miracles and doing all of this stuff, and there's no sense that Jesus is not anything but pleased with them. So I think he's more playful than anything here. It's like, you do it. So it's the disciples' response that I want to talk about, because with no idea what he's got in mind, with a very keen awareness that their resources aren't sufficient and in fact are entirely inadequate to feed all these people, they have seen enough to trust him by now and they follow his instruction. And however you picture this having happened, these guys are either putting their hands into like Mary Poppins carpet bag magically refilling baskets, or Jesus maybe has a never-ending gobstopper style baguette that just keeps miraculously not getting any smaller. However it happened, they were the distributors of this vitally important messianic declaration that Jesus not only satisfies our spiritual needs, but our physical ones too, who makes us full, who gives us more than enough and can be trusted to do so in the future. My contention is that the most significant thing about this miracle is not that God can provide, but what it shows us about what happens when we trust and follow him. However, let me stop here and say, seeing God provide is utterly vital for our faith. We can't really do any of this if we don't really believe that he will, both spiritually and physically. I will never forget being heavily pregnant with our second daughter on a very cold, wet, wintry day in London. And I was sitting in the car with my oldest daughter asleep in the back seat, she was just less than two. 
and it was a period of huge financial uncertainty for Ed and me and our landlady was kicking us out and I was days away from giving birth too, as it turned out. And I'd reached something of a breaking point that morning. And in that moment, I was sobbing in the car and I don't want to sound too fantastical, but I prayed aloud, please just give me a sign that this is all going to be okay. And in that moment, a postman or mailman, if you will, knocked on the window of the car and handed me a letter. And I, you know, don't want to be too over the top about this, but this is ridiculous. <laughs> We're all faceless and nameless in London. I had no idea that the mailman even knew who I was, let alone would come and give me a letter in the car. He'd never spoken to me before and he never did anything like this before or after. But he said, here, this is for you, with a big smile. And in the letter, which he couldn't possibly have known, was an anonymous card and an anonymous um, chunk of vouchers worth £500 which was kind of life-changing for me, not necessarily in its amount, but in terms of my faith, that God hears me and that he provides. And I never knew who it was from or why they sent it, but there it was. And I know that for so many people standing on the hillside that you currently are, you just need to know that God provides. So can I ask you, as challenging and scary as it may be, to ask him, to open yourself to him, to ask him to show you that he can do this. But to come back to the disciples, it is them who I think many of us have been called to see ourselves in, in this story this morning. Not the belly rumbling, nameless, faceless throng. We're supposed to know that we are a disciple. We're supposed to imagine the feeling that we get from handing out basket after basket after basket of divinely produced provision, handing out miracles, symbols of inclusion, symbols of this new era, symbols of the new thing that he is doing. Some for you and for you and for you. You're included and you're included and you're included. This is the kingdom of God. And it's how it works when we become his followers. And we're supposed to see ourselves with a basket each in surplus, sitting down with it in wonder and amazement, knowing that he can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. This miracle is about what we won't get to see if we haven't reached the place of knowing that our resources just won't do, they just aren't enough, they just can't see us through. This is about coming to Jesus with what we do have, woefully inadequate as it may be, to place them in his hands, to do whatever he wants to do with them and to trust him with the outcome. Because it is his way to do more than we can imagine, to multiply immeasurably. And the only way we get to see this is to trust him, to give him our meager offerings, to see what he can do through us, for the crowd, for others. When we allow him to brood over the things that he's put in us to go back to the hen and eggs imagery, to say, not my way, but yours. Here I am, have your way, use me. You know who gets to see miraculous provision most often in this life? 
It's the same as who gets to see miraculous healing and miraculous anything most often. It's the ones that ask for it. And I do have a sense that what he wants to show quite a number of us today is that this is what he's asking for from us. No matter how broken we're feeling, to be asked to be used. And we're going to listen to uh, this song, the OG Holy Spirit, Your Welcome song. Can I encourage yourself as we do that to open yourself to it now, to open yourself with expectation, to show him that you mean it. Stand up, open your hands and ask him. Say, here I am, Lord, use me. Come, Holy Spirit. Why don't you start just by telling him what you're feeling? bless what you're doing. Will you come in great power across this city as people watch and listen right now? Will you speak to us about what you're doing in the brokenness in this incubation time, in this period of enforced stillness? Will you bring dreams to life, birth new visions, give new gifts? Pour yourself out on us, Lord, just like you love to. Come, Holy Spirit. There's nothing with more that could ever come close. No thing can compare. You're our living hope. Your presence, Lord. I've tasted and seen all the sweetest of loves When my heart becomes free and my shame is undone Your presence, Lord Holy Spirit, you are Spirit, you are with. 
Your prayer.